0: this is the chronicles podcast a production of chronicles magazine the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in america
1: well welcome everybody to another episode of chronicles magazine podcast i have paul gottfried here with me today and we're talking with Aaron mcintyre Aaron has been a content creator for a number of years, and his YouTube and Twitter account have been very active. He's helped a lot of people understand the true nature of the American regime. He's focused on the total state, which is the name of his Substack, and we're really happy to have him on. So, Aaron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start here. I want to talk to you a little bit about your own development, because I think it's important in how we see the American regime for what it really is. What sparked your interest just in political theory in general? Were you active or interested in politics before you, you know, read Sam Francis or anyone like that?
2: Sure, yeah, I've always been really interested in politics. I was the kind of kid who was listening to political talk radio when I was like ten years old. Um and so it's just always something I found really interesting. And then when I went to college uh, for politics, I found the theory, to be the most interesting part so even when I was out of college and I wasn't doing anything with it it was the kind of thing that I just read because I enjoyed learning about it and uh, I kind of worked in politics local uh, Republican politics I worked as a political reporter for a number of years and as I was kind of just seeing everything that was going on I said okay this doesn't make a lot of sense especially with the political theory I was taught so I started looking a little more outside the box and that's when I started encountering a lot of the people that we talk about today
1: What's your background? Were you sort of like just a general Republican, like neoconservative leaning? Or did you ever go through a libertarian phase? I know for a lot of younger people, especially during the, the post financial crisis years, the libertarian uh, moment became big for a bit there with Ron Paul. But did you ever go through anything like that? Or have you always been sort of a like neoconservative to paleoconservative track?
2: I think I did what a lot of people did. I had again kind of that just talk radio Republican background. That's what I knew about politics, and so I kind of started out with, I guess, that quasi neo conservative uh, uh, you know position. And uh, then you know, as you get into college or you 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 kind of get further down that track, a lot of people are leaning towards libertarianism. That's where a lot of the kind of the even the GOP mainstream was was making noise about that at the time. I'm sure a lot of, a lot of libertarians would say, oh, no, that's not libertarianism. But, you know, whatever, nothing is. Uh, so the, I definitely had those leanings, though I never would have called myself a libertarian. I still had very conservative kind of uh, 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 social outlook. And so I don't think I ever would have fully embraced libertarianism uh, but then again, as, as I started kind of reading these other uh, these other theorists, started realizing that kind of both of those are are not very good positions, and definitely move more towards the paleo conservative wing.
1: Okay, so let's get let's get into this a little bit. A lot of your focus has been on the dynamics of power. Conservatives don't like talking a lot about power, but it's time to talk about it, and you've spent um, a good deal of time talking about. It. So I guess I guess sort of my first question that I want to get into is. Why are there so many younger people, you know, like like you're you're sub 40, I'm sub 40. Why are we finding significance in the perspectives of power analysis from people like James Burnham and Sam Francis, who we're going to talk about? Like what's what's driving that? Do you think it's the nature of the the present regime?
2: Yeah, I think it's just because uh, conservatism, as it stood, was completely devoid of this. There's never really understanding of how power worked. It was simply a kind of a grab bag of issues that were meant to push and pull uh, the voters in a particular way, raise funds a particular way. But there's no interest on the right in actually understanding the power dynamic, because if you understood the power dynamic, it might kind of give away a lot of what was, frankly, the grift. Uh, for a good amount of, uh, of kind of mainstream conservatism. Uh, I think now many people realize we're in a situation where we can't play this game anymore. You can't just sit around and kind of collect Gibbs off of your audience because there is a very real problem. There's a really uh, severe situation and you're kind of on on the end of the point where something can be done about it. And so I think there's a, a real hunger for young people to kind of discard this kind of status quo, maintenance, conservatism, and look for something that's actually interested in changing things and acquiring the power necessary to do so.
1: Paul, I wanna get your take on that because you've been part of this for a lot longer than we have and you've noticed um, the conservative incorporated really shun anybody who talks about the uh, sort of the value-free analysis of power as sort of a political science. Can you, so you, can you talk about just you, your experience with conservatism rejecting any type of analysis along these lines?
0: Yeah, I, I, th- I think that, that Oren is quite right. He says it's sort of a grab bag of current issues and anyone, anyone who wants to change the conversation is gonna to be tossed out of Conservatism Incorporated. Um, and what makes it even more interesting is the, the issues that, that belong in the grab bag uh, are typically the positions that liberals took five or 10 years ago. There, there's nothing intrinsically conservative about them. I mean, um, you know, saying that uh, a transgendered way of life and in, in, um, uh, is a threat to homosexual marriage, which I think is by now, or that, uh, the legacy of Martin Luther King is threatened by affirmative action, when in fact, of course, he backed affirmative action, um, to me, to me, there's like a series of fallback positions with which the conservative movement, um, has become strongly intertwined, and, you know, any, anybody who sort of goes outside the framework of discussion that it sets up is going to be canceled, um, I was canceled before anybody else was canceled, probably even before Sam Francis was, because I asked the wrong questions, I suppose, in the 1980s. Um, and I, I was interested in questions of powers. You know, I wrote a book on Carl Schmidt, And most of my books, in fact, deal with questions of power. Um, and, you know, you're not allowed to ask this. In, in my book, After Liberalism, I say that this is one of the ways that liberals govern or the left governs. They never talk about power. They're they're doing us favors. They're being nice to us. They're overcoming discrimination. They're making us more sensitive. Actually, they're you know they're knocking in our teeth. They're hitting us over the head with. <laughs> they're bludgeoning us. But it's never about power. It's about making us nice. And I think the conservative movement is the same way because it's it's you know it's simply a variation on the left. Uh, it's nothing more. But by the way, you know, listening to some of these young people, uh, as the probably the oldest one in the movement now. I think it is necessary that the conservative movement be replaced, canceled and replaced. Uh, You cannot do anything to improve it. Um, It is, you know, it is is, um, uh, totally gone, irrevocably gone by now. And I don't think was ever very much, although I devoted several books to the subject. But the the more I talk to young people like you or Oren, the more it seems to me that you are an entirely different wavelength from the conservative movement. We appreciate that, Paul. <laughs> so um, speaking of power,
1: and uh, you know, recently you had Curtis Yarvin on your show and th- there was that clip that was going around. Um, I-, I don't know if I would call it viral, uh, but it was shared widely. We'll say that. And he he mentioned that he had a cheeky little phrase where he basically said that the left focuses on power and not issues. They adopt issues mm-hmm. um, to, you know, if-, if they need power, they'll use issues as leverage to get that power, but conservative or the right needs to think about things more in this way. They need to stop focusing on issues and to focus on grasping power. So could you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what um, Curtis meant by that, uh, Oren?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, Yarvin is understands that uh, the, this chasing the issues thing, this the, that we were just talking about that Paul was just making reference to the constant parade of of issues to kind of distract uh, people from from what's happening. And he mm-hmm. said that, well, you know, there are he, he had some criticism, for instance, for Ron DeSantis. Uh, around uh, some of the issues of what he was doing, the thing he had praise for him uh, for was on the issue of election reform, because election <clears throat> reform is something that actually directly affects power. It mm-hmm. affects the voting mechanism, it ensures uh, who's going to be in charge. And so rather than spend ammunition on things that don't actually change the power dynamic in the United States, Yarvin was really imploring the right to secure power first, because without the power, none of the other changes come. So if you get, you know, he used the, uh, uh, I think the apt analogy of a, of a drug addict, you know, they get a little bit of something, money or something, and they immediately blow it on drugs or gambling or whatever.
0: <laughs> and, and he
2: said, the conservative is just a drug addict, he just wants mm-hmm. to grab a little bit of power and immediately spend it on whatever issue is bothering him, rather than realizing that the best thing to do with power is to acquire more power. So at which point you have enough power to actually fully change the whole systemic problem, rather than just Mm -hmm. chasing down each issue as it pops up, as it's presented to you by the left, which it really just ends up animating the left while keeping conservatives completely distracted from actually making any kind of gains inside the system.
1: We hear a lot about this. You know, this issue comes up quite frequently. We discuss the Constitution. You know, know, I know you and I had a little bit of back and forth Online, or maybe you just retweeted me, but you know, my point was that there's all this focus on just rhetoric, like we need to be more constitutional, or the Constitution can save us. But those those things are just fleeting. They don't actually deal with um, the enforcement of of power. They don't deal with opposing the left in a in a meaningful way. And so, I think a lot of conservatives they get caught up with the with the sort of myth that, that they love nostalgically, but they don't. They're not actually willing to do what it takes to get that. Um, to get that power and oppose the left. And I think this is one of the dynamics of the conservative movement versus the left in America is the left is really willing to exercise power. And -hmm. they're also willing to employ the rhetoric of constitutionalism to keep the conservatives at bay, you know, in, in, in a way that conservatives really walk into almost every time.
2: Yeah, there, there's a really fabulous uh, construction of the Constitution on the American conservative movement, where the Constitution is just this some kind of uh, Rube Goldberg machine that will keep the entire system running perfectly, with and no one will ever be able to violate it, and no one will ever be able to uh, supplant it or, or or subvert it. And of course, this isn't the case at all. You know, I, I have a video about Joseph de Maistre and discussing his understanding of political constitutions, and the fact that the political constitution at the end of the day is nothing but a reflection of the will of the people. It's, it's, only, it's only instantiating the things that already exist, the forms that already exist inside a nation or a group of people. And so the only way that a constitution can continue to enforce the values of those people is the people themselves are actually involved in it. And I think that's what the conservative movement lost. They lost, but just be frank, they lost their faith in God and they lost their faith in in the people. And instead, they expected liberalism and this constitution to kind of uh, uh, mediate a conflict of visions inside their country that was just existentially fatal. Uh, and so they, uh, and so because they've done that, they've just made themselves, like you said, just easy prey for this uh, the shell game that liberals will, will uh, play on them, where they they demand that the right respect the constraints of the Constitution while they run roughshod over it any time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they don't have any need to actually comply with it because at the end of the day, the left believes in a living Constitution where the right has held to this kind of idea that the Constitution is a never-changing document that enforces itself without any interaction mm-hmm. with the actual people.
1: Paul, do you have a take on that? I, you know, I'm interested in the use of the Constitution as just part of the building of the conservative brand.
2: Yeah, well, we, uh, we obviously
0: know that uh, this goes back to Schmidt's distinction between mm-hmm. legalism and legitimacy, right? That uh, one of the characteristics of liberal regimes, according to Schmidt, is that they believe in the written document. Once you write down the law, the law has a life of its own and you don't you just people just can apply it. You know, um, and of course, we see that's not true, <laughs> um, that in order for regimes to function, they must be able to legitimate themselves. Um, the, the 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 problem that that I have here is that um, I'm not quite sure that there's something called I, mean, I don't know what the people is in this sense the uh, in which legitimacy re, uh, 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 re- resides. I mean, according to Schmidt, that democracy assumes legitimacy of the people, folk um, sovereignty. Uh, so the people are sovereign. But who are the people? Are the people the uh, the inhabitants of Chicago, Illinois, or do we mean by the people, you know, the inhabitants, the uh, the German Pietist inhabitants of the town, the small town in which I live? Uh, because you know, majority of the of of the voters in the United States um, are probably on the left by now on every social issue, um, and I think one of the problems is that we extended the franchise too far. Uh, and it's very hard for the right to hold on, given the present electorate. And it'll be even harder once um, Biden succeeds in bringing in all these illegals who will be, of course, um, enfranchised within six months or a year, whenever the Democrats get around to it. The, 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 uh, the, the, the other thing that, what, what that Orrin says that does um, resonate with me is the acceptance by the so-called conservative movement, which would probably have to be changed in order for it to make a difference in terms um, of having an effect on American political society. It could not be, you know, electing Nikki Haley could not be looked upon as a conservative victory, right? Um, Or if we get back uh, Trump and he puts the same people in power that he used last time, that also won't really be a conservative victory. Uh, so so we have to understand what a conservative victory is, and it would be something very different from what we hear on Fox News, right? It would, it would, and you know I think Sam Francis was right on this. Would ha- and, and Burnham were right. That it would have to be a serious move to the right that we'd be capable uh, of of carrying out. Um, and it would have to be something other than conservatism incorporated that would be calling the shots. Uh, so we're, we're not even in a position where the conservatives can exercise power because we're not quite sure what conservatism means at this point. That, that's, you know, that's his problem. The, the other thing that Orrin said that, that does bother me uh, intensely is the Republican acceptance of this double standard. I mean, these, these jerks were running around saying we have to remove George Santos because he lied. And this was throughout the Murdoch Press and on this and the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal. This man is unfit to represent his district uh, in Long Island because he lied. As if the Democrats do not lie constantly, rig elections to everything else. But the the Republicans have to conduct elections on uh, the foundations of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, they have to practice monkish virtue. I mean, that this is unbelievable. These people are absolute fools. You know, if you want to be a Trappist monk, be a Trappist monk. If you want to enter politics, you have to play by the same rules as the other side. And right now, the other side is ruthless. And unless you're willing to be ruthless, uh, you know, you really, you really do not belong in the political game right now.
1: Or, and you recently made um, an adjacent point to what Paul just said you're talking about like the idea of cultural neutrality um so the left has this you know they obviously have this cultural agenda where they're trying to basically inverse um, and re-engineer you know a lot of the you know the instincts and the the mores of the Western peoples and the conservatives kind of come back to this with just this neutral um, ideal where the individual can decide for himself that they shouldn't have the leftist institutions deciding for them. And they talk about things like individual rights and the ability for um, just individuals to set their own standards and that the culture at large can be this neutral playing ground where everyone can basically choose their own way. But you've kind of exposed this um, in a great article I'm actually going to link to in, on the show notes page. Um, but you basically say that, that cultural neutrality is a lie and that we need to confront the left's own positive vision of a framework with a conservative or right-wing or traditional mm-hmm. cultural framework. We can't go back to this neutrality because cultural neutrality is the very thing that was taken over by the left. So, Oren, could you comment on on the the need for the right to put forth a, you know, a cultural vision of their own?
2: Sure. As Carl Schmidt pointed out, and I, I believe it's a uh, political or political theology, the, Uh, liberalism came with a promise that it would uh, kind of put aside all these conflicts of vision. We would have some Mm -hmm. kind of minimum necessary morality that would uh, kind of govern all of our options. Everything would be very logical. Everybody would be uh, very non-biased. Things would be governed by these Uh, institutions that would be above all this factionalism. And that's very appealing because it allows everyone to kind of interact and cooperate. But it's also a lie. There is no such thing as a neutral institution. no such thing as a neutral state. There's always decisions being made. Someone is always acting. And when they're doing so, they're always doing so based on some kind of framework. But conservatives bought into this idea that there was this uh, there are these n- neutral institutions that were just going to mediate all these conflicts and you didn't really need to worry about your values uh being represented in those institutions because those institutions were value free they were simply going to make the best decision for everybody but as Schmidt points out, you know the the friend enemy distinction is always operating behind the scene there's always uh that choice being made and so the left was able to move in and capitalize on this, conservative idea of institutional neutrality by placing its own values into all of these institutions mm-hmm. and representing them as the null hypothesis, kind of the the, the thing by which all other uh, things must be judged and, and, and justified. And so the conservatives have to stop playing this game. They have to stop pretending that we're going to return to some theoretical neutral position that never existed, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know They have this idea that somewhere in the 90s, there was this perfect equilibrium where you know, the institutions didn't push their values on anyone. But of course, that's just the apex of something that was about to fall, right? And so once the momentum had started heading the other way, all of a sudden they said, oh, this is insane. But no, this has been happening for a very long time. And so I think, uh, you know, conservatives just really have to or the the right, you know, uh, however we want to use the terminology correctly, needs to grasp the idea, if anything, I guess we just need to shatter conservatism in the <laughs> by showing it that there is no there's nothing to conserve your, mm-hmm. your, your uh, ideologically neutral uh, institutions never existed you're not conserving them you're not going back to them the only thing to do is to provide a positive vision that combats that of the left because as soon even if you could purge every bit of crt or wokeness or whatever we're calling it these days political correctness the civil rights revolution out of american institutions It would all just come right back in if you don't install another positive vision to fill the void. If you don't have a positive vision, you're enforcing someone else is, and there's just no way around that.
1: So now we find ourselves in this situation where all the institutions have been captured. People like Roger Scruton, for instance, they talk about, you know, the the sort of eternal nature of conservatism's commitment to the institutions. Um, but once we recognize that all these institutions have been completely taken over, captured and occupied, we find ourselves face to face with what you call the total state. The total state is something that basically supersedes or, you know, exists transcendently over both the, you know, the so-called public and private sectors. Talk a little bit about the, the total state. I mean, that's the name of your substack. And so that's a theme that you emphasize, what is the total state and what what do you mean by it?
2: Well, uh, again, uh, Carl Schmitt coined the term and he was talking about, uh, at least I believe he did, that's the first time I encountered it. And he's talking about how the state, when the state and the uh, society pierce each other, when they kind of overlap, uh, there, there are different spheres of sovereignty in each society. And in a society where the political is confined just to the state, other areas like religion and, and, and ec- economics and things can exist in a somewhat neutral zone. Mm-hmm. But once you've had politics pierce this, uh, uh, pierce the society, once the state and society have overlapped, uh, like they do in any democratic society, all of a sudden the state must have an interest in all of these spheres mm-hmm. because all of them can impact the sovereignty of the state. All of them can, because popular sovereignty is a legitimating mechanism for the state's action any uh any variation of this can cause uh, a loss of sovereignty of the state so they need to gain more and more control over each one of these and so we're what we're observing the reason i call the substack the total state is what we're observing what a lot of conservatives are very confused about the politicization of everything why why are they doing the black national anthem at my nfl game you know why why is there a a, a blm flag uh over my church you know why are they why are they, uh, you know, baptizing people in the name of George Floyd out in front of these protests. And the answer is because you're in the total state, because the, the the political and the personal are now completely overlapped. The state has an active interest in changing, altering basically every belief to make sure that it conforms kind of under the managerial regime. And so in in order to squeeze every bit of efficiency and every bit of control, over kind of the people that it manages, the regime must go ahead and insert itself into basically every uh, social, political, cultural interaction at every level.
1: Paul, oh, I want to get your take on that—the total
0: politicization of everything. No, I th- I think that's absolutely correct. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm listening to Oren uh, in awe because I think he's drawn out the implications of some of the books I've written in the in the past. But I and he sort of um, understands how some of these ideas apply to what's to what's going on now. There's uh, we, we are living in, in a total state, but I think Schmidt also makes a distinction between the quantitative total state and the qualitative des total state. that quantitative and qualitatively, they're different. And that we have as a quantitative uh, total state, it is one where every human activity is brought under um, state control. It is not done in a qualitative fashion. It is everything is brought <clears throat> under state control. And, and of course, um, always in the name of making us nicer, fighting discrimination, sensitive, the therapeutic aspect is of course. And it's not only true here, it's true in every so-called Western liberal democracy. It's exactly the same. It's worse in, in Canada, Germany, and other places than it is here. And one is sort of left with the question of why is this model um, uh, now extended throughout the Western world and in every country influenced by the Western, for instance, Australia is the same thing. Uh, these are the areas that are part of the Anglosphere. Um, and I, I think that's important. But getting back to another point that I think Oren dwells in, it's this sort of idea of sort of going back to an ideal point in the recent past. I think this is another uh, aspect of the so-called conservative reaction to the left, which is not much of a reaction at all. And I, I think what the conservative movement has done is to idealize certain privileged moments. Like, you know, you start with the, the Declaration of Independence and these people here are now committed to universal equality in the name of natural rights and all men are created equal. And this is not only for us, but it's a universal mission for the United States. And you have all these people dressed in 18th century Clothes who are committed to the neoconservative agenda or something which has become the conservative agenda. Then, then we also have the ideal moment in the civil rights movement. And I'm supposed to debate this with, with uh, one of our contributors tomorrow. Uh, and I, I find that I stand alone on the, uh, among my friends on the right, except for some of the paleoconservatives, but some of the more conventional conservatives would insist that Martin Luther King Really show the way to the good civil rights movement, then people, you know, undid his heritage. Or uh, we have to go back to the even earlier civil rights movement when these um, brave young black people were sitting at a lunch counter and wouldn't be served by these white, you know, southern thugs or, or something like that. But there's always this privilege moment, and we missed that privilege moment. We went beyond it. But if we could only have stopped at that point, everything would be fine. Or the, what Oren discussed, the 1990s, there was some kind of equilibrium in government, which is now, or the or the Reagan era, Stephen Hayward, uh, that you know that this supposedly was a was a decade in which the New Deal was undone, you know by uh, uh, you know, sort of type and anti-type in the Bible. So the the, the type is FDR, the anti-type is Ronald Reagan, <laughs> you know, who who redeems us from the mistakes of the New Deal. Uh, none of these things is true, of course. There are simply moments in a process, I argue, you know, and sometimes the uh, sometimes there's there's times of acceleration in the direction of the total state and political correctness and so forth. At other times, things just move more slowly, but there's no counter revolution occurring. uh, And usually these privileged moments are sort of made up in the minds of people, you know, you know, who are trying to find a reaction who who are trying to find an alternative to the present left. But one that doesn't put push us back too far in time, you know. So the, sort of the, the the late coming left, um, uh, which is the right. The linker, uh, the late coming left is is the right, is the is the is the official right, and it's always sort of like looking for that moment before things got really bad. And right now, gay marriage is okay. It's just I suppose it's the leap into uh, gender reassignment that's bad. Um, but you know, I'd agree with oren and with 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 Carl that you need um a basic reconfiguring um of the right in order to create an effective opposition to what the left is now doing.
1: So Paul, you just, you just used the phrase that these points in time are moments in a more general process. Let's talk about that general process. I think Oren um, would agree with me that these come out of what can be referred to as the managerial revolution. So mm-hmm. um, Oren, can you talk about what the managerial revolution is? Um, but before you get into the details of it, defining it, who are some of the influences that um, taught us what we know about the, the character of this revolution?
2: Sure. I mean, as as many people listening to this may already be aware, James Burnham wrote a book of, on the managerial revolution, uh, which laid out the idea that while you had, you know, fascism and communism and Western liberalism, at the end, everyone was actually moving towards this managerial structure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you had different, different iterations of the managerial structure. But at the end of the day, all of these regimes were going to be moving towards this. And the idea was that Basically, the capitalist class, while it had had control of uh, of kind of government and society in general, uh, leading up to that point, was kind of slowly surrendering its power to these managers who were trained to uh, operate large bureaucratic organizations on which the capitalists were kind of required to rely uh, going forward. And that as these managers became their own consolidated interest group, there was a level of bureaucratic and interest drift that occurred inside these large organizations where the managers were more interested in generating power for themselves and opportunity for themselves, expanding their their purview than they were in the actual health and performance of the organizations they operated. And so this has been happening everywhere. You know, we, we see people post things on like Twitter or Facebook, uh, memes about, uh, you know, why education had went from having, you know, one principal in each school back in the 1940s to having 47 principals and and counselors and, you know, uh, staff and every kind of social worker you can imagine. Why, why all these different government uh, institutions have just exploded their bureaucratic uh, arms. And the answer is that it's in the interest of the of the managerial revolution. It's the interest of the managers to expand their purview, to bring everything under their spheres of discipline. You can't raise a child without the intervention of managers. You can't, you know, go to school, send send someone to school without the intervention of managers. You can't operate a business. You can't uh, get any kind of governmental process done without at each level having, uh, you know, many different layers of managerial uh, intrusion into every form of the process. And so James Burnham is obviously a huge influence. And then Sam Francis uh, did a lot of uh, work, obviously, in fleshing out his ideas as well. Those are the two main ones mm-hmm. that I draw on when I'm looking at the manager re- managerial revolution.
1: Paul, can you can you comment a little about you? You've used the fr- the phrase um, the therapeutic state. Can you talk about the therapeutic state as an iteration of the how it came out of the managerial revolution?
0: Yeah, I, I think the managerial revolution that's described by Burnham and Sam Francis and others uh, is the precondition for the therapeutic state,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, or for you know Schmidt's notion of the die quantitative Staat, the quantitative total state. Um, and, you know, what what it does is sort of push managerial control beyond dealing with uh, socioeconomic problems um, to a basic reconstruction of human consciousness um, on the grounds that we can, you know, we, ha- we have to fight against discrimination and people treating each other insensitively um, and, uh, you know, make sure that they can cooperate on the basis of the sh- shared humanitarian principles which the therapeutic state will outline for us, and then impose this on people. And this has worked very well. And, you know, I argue my book on anti-fascism that anti-fascism really drives this, that, you know, we want to avoid becoming fascist. And you see fascism leads to Hitler and Auschwitz. Now, if we want to avoid all these things, we have to uh, sensitize people and we have to overcome discrimination because Hitler engaged in discrimination. Of course, so did everybody else throughout well, human history, but we forget about that. You know, people always make social, cultural distinctions. <laughs> but And they'll go on being made, but the state managers will make them for us. It's not that these things are going to go away. Uh, you know, now we have something like half the Black people in America saying that you're not allowed to say you're white anymore. I mean, that's obviously discrimination. Black Lives Matter discriminates. But th- but those are... are um, morally sensitive forms of discrimination approved of by the therapeutic state. Um, But I I, I think there's no way of exaggerating the importance of anti-fascism or anti-Naziism in this. And some of this also becomes connected in the 1960s with anti-communism, that in order to be, you know, to fight convincingly against the Soviet empire and communism, we have to show that we're sensitive people and that we're overcoming discrimination at home. So so that whether you're fighting the fascist or the communist, um, uh, the therapeutic state is important. And, and then the final stage is in, in when the therapeutic state decides that disagreeing with it is, is, is either pathological or is a criminal activity or both. So that the state, be, the state becomes involved uh, in reconditioning us so we do not behave this way. And of course the state is never using brute power, only the fascists use brute power um, you know, if they throw you into jail or if they beat you up, or they, they, this is being done to sensitize you and to overcome prejudice and discrimination. And this, I, I, I think, this uh, therapeutic managerial model has become dominant in every country that today describes itself as liberal democratic.
1: You know, as as someone who personally came out of the you know more conservative evangelical world, um, you know, I see this everywhere. The, the adoption of these therapeutic priorities um mm-hmm. you know like using phrases like you know christian love which has been like a phrase that has been emphasized um from augustine you know in, in farther back to the church fathers but now christian love has to do with uh you know embracing and, and tolerating you know specific regime approved uh right. cultural minorities uh, right. especially like you know it's about christian love as a, a stance on Uh, you know, your racial priorities. It's a stance on, um, you know, whether you tolerate homosexuality. And so you can kind of see the total state permeating into every aspect of Western life. And it it keeps the same rhetoric, right? So Christians today in the evangelical world, they can still use the same rhetoric, like, you know, love and justice, but they just have to be filled with the content of the total state, the therapeutic state. Um, So uh, or if you could comment a little bit on on that aspect of it, because Paul mentioned the fact that, you know, the, the therapeutic state, it doesn't enforce its ideas at the point of a gun. You know, it's it's not Soviet in that sense. Um, but there are real consequences for disagreeing with the new orthodoxies. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's all right. Our our therapeutic state, as Paul calls it, is absolutely one run by foxes. Uh, it's one run by people who are uncomfortable with direct physical force and are more comfortable with manipulation uh, and subversion and so they know that it's not great press to go ahead and just gulag all of your political opponents but if you can go ahead and make all of them some kind of uh, you know uh, have some kind of mental illness or some kind of uh, you know, personal defect that can be ameliorated through these different uh, the- uh, therapeutic processes. Then you can put your enemies in basically, uh, you know, uh, re-education camps, but call them something different. You can you can give them some kind of le- legitimate uh, thing. I think a big part of this is uh, the need of uh, to transfer everything to the material. Right? Our new priestly ca- class are these managers. Are these therapeutic? Uh, administrators. And everything needs to fall under their purview. So nothing can be moral, nothing can be metaphysical, everything needs to fall under this kind of scientific rubric of, of, you know, and there should need to be able to apply these scientifically derived uh, treatments in order to kind of cure racism or sexism or whatever other undesirable, uh, you know, regime disapproved behavior that people have. And this is, of course, Uh, just a good political formula for the managerial elite because one of the key aspects of the managerial political formula is the deracination of people. It is the melting down, the removal of barriers, the the removal of moral particulars and cultural particularities that are bred into people by where they're born and and what cultures they're a part of. And instead, everything needs to become this gray goo that can be easily switched out and managed. Everybody's a widget that can be swapped out for someone in a different country Whenever it becomes uh, kind of undesirable. And so the managers are 100% on board with this because it serves their interest of having this universally applicable therapeutic uh, treatment that will always get rid of the behaviors that otherwise might make someone a less compliant subject to the managerial state. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to get both of your takes on uh, a central theme of Sam Francis and of course, James Burnham as well. That's the idea of the circulation of elites. Um, let's go with Paul first. Do you think that you see um, elites being swapped out now? Is there, is there a new class of elites that's on the rise uh, from the ascendant left that, that's distinct from sort of the elites that uh, you know, were managing the consensus in the 40s and 50s and 60s? I mean, do you think, do you think right now you're seeing a transformation into a new body of
0: elites? Not really. Um, I I think the most important uh, circulation of elites was when the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elites were replaced largely, well, first by German and by Eastern European Jews, and uh, then you have Italians and other groups coming into the mix. Uh, So I I see see this as a kind of ethnic circulation of elites, uh, which has some significance, because I think the values of these these other groups are different. But let, let me just say that I... I do not entirely agree with Burnham and Francis um, and probably not entirely with Oren and how he sees um, the uh, the managerial elites uh, uh, behaving. I don't think they're simply I think they are seeking power. But in addition to that, and this, this is a difference that I had with Sam, um, I think they really do believe the nonsense that they're pushing. Uh, just as I believe that people who worked for the Nazi regime believe the Nazi ideology They were not just being cynical. Um, You know, Hillary Clinton uh, would not become a fascist or a neo reactionary, you know, if the political climate would be very hard to him, even though she's an opportunistic woman. um, I think she's genuinely committed to her feminist ideology or to whatever else the left believes. Um, I think Obama is committed to his ideology. I think we're committed to our beliefs. Uh, and I think wokeness does represent a political religion that's very important and has taken over the entire Western world, just as Christianity, as a religion, you know, took over the uh, the ancient and medieval world. And, uh, I, the, uh, and, and I would also argue that just about every leftist ideology is a Christian, it looks like a Christian heresy to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes certain selective elements from Christianity, exaggerates them and throws out all the rest and declares war on Christianity. Mm-hmm. which they've obviously done the left um but I, I you know I, I I don't think they're just being cynical. I think they really do believe these political religions is what makes them really dangerous. they're just cynical you know power uh, just opportunistic. I wouldn't be as terrified by them as I as I am um as, as, as I look at the woke left, I mean they're they're engaged in doing things that are very self-destructive. I mean, do you really want most blacks in America at war with whites or wanting to exterminate or destroy the white race? And that's exactly where they're moving. And of course, I know there's white leftists who are manipulating things and so forth, but th- th- this this, th- this is not like other ideologies. This is not like bourgeois liberalism, you know, which does preserve the ruling class that, that, um, and you know create some kind of social and political order and prosperity. This looks like a this looks more like Nazism. This is a very destructive ideology that our managerial elites are now playing with.
1: I mean, that aspect of their own commitment to the ideology, You think? do you see that as sort of distinct from an earlier rendition of the managerial state where maybe they were more Machiavellian and less committed?
2: So uh, funny enough, I actually just had this discussion with Academic Agent on his YouTube channel uh, yesterday and actually came down on Paul's side. Um, I, he, Academic Agent believes like, Pareto believed that, and and mm-hmm. I think probably Sam Francis believed that this is purely cynical. Uh, I, I think that Gaetano Mosca was closer to this in his idea mm-hmm. of the political uh, uh, political formula. Mm-hmm. Mosca said that all of these things do serve the interests of the ruling class, but it's also essential that they believe them. That mm-hmm. that if you have a ruling uh, class whose political formula is purely cynical, is purely ideological, uh just for power then it it becomes brittle they're ruling through direct power the whole time and it'll eventually break apart pretty easily uh as where if you have a uh a ruling class whose ideology is informed by their self-interest but is also something that they really believe in that the people really believe in that's the basis for real lasting power and rule so i agree with with paul that these people totally believe it i just think that it also Serves mm-hmm. their power interests. I think these mm-hmm. things are are they they run parallel. They're not. They're, it's not one thing driving totally the other. They mm-hmm. they work in tandem, uh, and so I think that the current elites are becoming increasingly ideo- ideological. Uh, because they're kind of because the circulation of elites has ended. Actually, I just wrote a piece on the blaze. It's it's out a couple of days ago on the circulation of elites. And Pareto said that any uh, circulation of elites is, is always occurring. And what when you get a revolution or you get a you get a large switch of elites, it's because your uh, your circulation of elites has stopped. It's ceased, and the the your elite is becoming brittle and decadent as it's denied all the best aspects of your society because it will no longer allow new members to kind of enter the elite and add their uh, their kind of gifts and experience uh, to to the elite. And so I think that's where we're at. I think Paul's right that the circulation of elites has largely ended. And now what we're ending up is a decadent and sclerotic ruling class who Mm -hmm. is being denied access or is denying itself access to all the talent that would otherwise kind of stabilize themselves through the natural Mm -hmm. circulation of elites. And uh, I think that's why we see just the competence level of our elites plummeting because they've specifically cordoned themselves off uh, from the groups that might otherwise circulate in and revivify and kind of strengthen their rule uh, over the people.
1: If you look at their ideology, and you look at the just the masses just the general you know everyday person across america most people are not committed to this ideology and most people are are in fact pretty ticked off by it And i think trump represents that that frustration do you think there's any role because i mean as as people who who look at politics as sort of the the clash of elites and the clash of um actual power um democracy and populism, those things are largely myths. You know, Those things are, are largely, uh, they don't play a key role in the development of societies, but do you see any role for populism as sort of a tactic in order to confront, um, but you would have to be driven of course by a leader or someone who actually has power or access to power, but do you see any role for sort of the populist rhetoric in order to confront, meaningfully confront with power, um, the ruling elite?
2: sure absolutely i mean uh, as as DeJuvenal points out all, uh, all all of these acquisitions of power come from a leader at the top mobilizing mm-hmm. people who are out at the periphery and there's a large number of people who are just completely disenfranchised most people are going to follow power because mm-hmm. it can it, it will leave them alone if they do they will believe what power tells them to believe as long as it consistently uh, delivers desirable results but over time you know if the if the lights don't come on and the trains don't run on time and you can't order essential medicine, then people start to look for other opportunities. And if we end up in a situation where things continue the way they're going, people are only gonna look more and more vehemently for someone who will simply return you know a, a regularity a an equilibrium and a competence to the system so i do think that people in general will follow power but i think that it, as if power continues to not be able to deliver on the promises of kind of prosperity and equilibrium in the system they will uh, they will be a force the, the the population and populism will be a force that can be leveraged by a competent elite to uh, kind of change things and bring about a, a more a more competent system, a more desirable system.
1: Paul, what do you think about this aspect of populism?
2: Yeah, I, I, I would agree
0: with Oren with about this. I, I think that uh, there may be almost half the American population is very dissatisfied, profoundly dissatisfied with the regime. Um, the problem is they have no leadership. Um, and uh, there are people you know who are, uh, who are part of Conservatism Incorporated who are just terrified of being called racist, sexist, homophobes. The result of this, of course, is they've entirely limited the possibility of, uh, of change directed against the left. Um, what, one of the things that dawned on me many, many decades ago is that no matter who represents the right, the, uh, the, the leftist establishment is going to come at you with exactly the same accusations, whether it's mm-hmm. Richard Spencer or Nikki Haley. They're going to be attacked the same way. You're a racist. You're a sexist with this. Um, my, my, uh, my, my view is that if one had a genuine conservative opposition, it would probably be attacked no more than the way conservatism incorporated is being attacked by the left right now. Um, one has to be careful. You know, I, I, I think that uh, part of what a conservative, a real conservative movement must do is to hide its hand. You don't tell people. Then the left does this all the time. The left lies to us constantly about what it plans to do. So there, there's no reason you know, for a conservative, a real to tell you everything they're gonna do, but they're gonna to have to just push back. They're gonna to have to take over institutions of government, reoccupy them. They're gonna to try to find some way to control the culture or at least limit the influence of the left. These are all things that have to be done. By the way, I don't think Ron DeSantis is the answer to everything. But at least he understands where the enemy is and has some kind of strategy. You know, I'm not particularly happy with how far he goes. Like, you know, he's very careful not to step on too many toes, you know, when he attacks the uh, uh, the political correctness and the woke lobby. But at least he knows where the enemy is and he takes at least some minimal steps against the enemy. But a real conservative movement will have to do this and a lot more and simply drown out the noise from the left. They're going to come after you. They're going to call you all kinds of names. The Anti-Defamation League will attack you. The Southern Poverty Law. New York Times will come after you. Simply assume this. You just drown out the noise and just keep moving. And this is exactly the way a conservative movement will have to operate, a real conservative movement. But I agree with Oren that there certainly is a critical mass of people who are, uh, are very dissatisfied with government here. And this makes us different from other Western countries. In Germany... The, the only uh, opposition to the government is coming from, from the AfD, which has hardly any power and is not that far to the right, but are being attacked as neo-Nazis and being excluded from professional positions and so forth. Um, we have a much larger American right, uh, much, much larger, um, and, you know, much larger than in Canada where the right hardly exists. Uh, so so that there is some opportunity to change. I, I also uh, nurse the hope that if change comes here, it will affect the other countries in the West because of our dominant hegemonic position. Uh, And here I, you know, sort of take my cue from Karl Marx, who thought that if the advanced bourgeois capitalist nations change, uh, England, Germany, and France, then these other, you know, outliers are also these smaller countries. uh, these, These less westernized countries will also change. Uh, and I hope that if if there is a counter-revolution or a movement, toward, it's not really a counter-revolution, it'll be a movement toward the right. I don't believe we can ever go back uh, fully. But if we do have the, this movement toward this, this successful movement of the right, then this is going to have implications for for other Western countries um, uh, over the long run, because because we really are the are the economic and cultural and political leaders of the Western world.
1: All right, Oran. You know, I want to get your take on on final thoughts on what Paul just said. You know, especially with regard to you know the ability of some sort of right wing leader to be willing to take all of these uh, the same accusations that we hear about everything. I mean, the, the drowning out the noise, um, being willing to confront the institutions and not letting the rhetoric affect them. I want to hear your last comment on that, and then I want to hear about where people can find you, and we'll we'll, we'll start to close
2: sure i think paul's exactly right if you you can't get anywhere as long as you're living inside this long house of the left until you are willing to break out of this until you're willing to ignore this rhetoric and do what needs to be done then you're always going to be captured by it and this is i say this all the time on places like twitter it's like look until these accusations lose all power can, you know the, the the right is just doomed you, you can't do anything you can't say anything you can't sneeze. Uh, as Paul has pointed out, the the operating religion of uh, basically our, our our regime is denazification, and until mm. you're able to delegitimize that by saying your you know your accusations hold no power, I'm going to do what's right for my family. I'm going to do what's right for my country. I'm going to do what's right because it's what God told us to do and that's all it's going to be, then you're just, you're always gonna fail because you're Mm -hmm. always appealing to the authority of the left and looking for their approval rather than appealing to the higher authorities, which would actually compel people to look beyond this progressive system. And so I think it's really essential that, uh, you know, and this does not of course mean that you do not live with principles. It does not mean that you do not live with virtues. It just means that you don't let the left define what those things are for you. That, that, that you have sources outside of this political uh, regime that actually uh, inform what values your movement and, and your culture are going to live by. And I think, uh, you know, the right has to absolutely th- this is at the end of the day what uh, the destruction of conservatism as it stands means. It means abandoning this this uh, this being cowed by the left. And instead embracing uh, your own values, your own worldview, and realizing that you have to advance that if you're going to have a situation where your family and your community can thrive.
1: I thought it was hilarious when Nikki Haley announced, you know, her entire framing of her own candidacy was that she's a woman and that therefore the Democrats are the real sexists and the, the Republicans are able to leverage the power of, of women. And they just they just totally stick to this completely liberal framework in order to make mm-hmm. the case for them. And that's the position that led us to where we are. So um, with that said, Oren, we thank you for your time. I want to I want to get your sort of where people can find you, your Twitter handle, et cetera
2: oh yeah no thanks for having me it's it's been a great conversation of course people can find me uh, on uh, twitter youtube uh, gab uh, odyssey rumble all of those channels you just google oren mcintyre and they're there Uh, my stuff's on on the blaze uh, blaze tv and then of course uh, the oren mcintyre podcast you can get it on apple and spotify Mm -hmm. all those places